Hey, good morning, Karen. Happy New Year to everyone. I hope yes. uh, 2021 landed on you as lightly as a butterfly with sore feet. <laughs> I just, uh, how do spiders feel about discovering me in their shower, is what I wonder. You know, oh. Here's a, poor spiders in there. It's his home, and all of a sudden, there's a terrible uh, thunderstorm, maybe some bad singing. It's just, uh, boy, <laughs> it's a tough way to start off the new year for them. Uh, my first bird of the year, I always notice what the first bird, and I might, uh, oh, I don't know if it's cheating or not, I might kind of time the look and where I'm going to look <laughs> to see something I really want to see. Uh, my first bird, I, I really didn't do much of that this year. Uh, I just kind of went by a window, and my first bird of the year was a cardinal, which often Aww. comes very early and very late. So I I think that's a, 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 it's a good omen. Well, I I certainly hope I saw my first bird of the year was a chickadee when we were cleaning out the basement. I had a few days off. My husband and I, he came across a a bird feeder that we had got for Christmas and forgot about. It's like looks like an old red barn and it's kind of a nice one and had a a five pound bag of bird seed with it. And we thought we should put this out. Well, the first thing that came was a little chickadee. So I think that's a good omen as well. Boy, I do, too. And we uh, I put out uh, peanuts. And blue jays just love these uh, in-the-shell peanuts. And I put those out, and then I'll put some uh, little uh, peanuts out of the shell for chickadees and nuthatches and red-bellied woodpeckers that really like them. And it's interesting now, I've been doing this for so long now, the blue jays come in and kind of look at the peanuts out of the shell and say, this isn't <laughs> what we ordered. We wanted them in the shell. So apparently... At least the blue jays in my yard now are maybe they're just more accustomed to peanuts in the shell, but they <laughs> appear to like them more. So it allows the little chickadees and these other birds to grab the peanuts, Aww. which just makes my day. And in normal uh, normal times, and maybe now, you know, a good share of people are driving somewhere. And the, the first bird of the year for a lot of folks, I bet, are, is a crow. Oh. Uh, because they're they're going down the highway. Maybe they're they've left before it got really light, and they're headed to work or going somewhere. And what do they see? It, there's a crow on the road uh, checking something out. So I bet that is the and that's a good bird too. I, any bird you see is good. I had a white-throated sparrow. I was here yesterday, but on New Year's Day it was on the ground under the feeders, and my Christmas chipmunk joined me uh, once again on New Year's Day. And me, uh, I spent New Year's with my lovely bride, who I love very much, and uh, wondered how many stars there are in the sky, uh, as I do, I think, every year around this time. And we uh, we did a drive to drop off Christmas things. I told everybody we just drove by loved ones' houses and threw gifts out the window <laughs> onto their lawn and food and things. And I... One of the things that uh, kind of caught my attention were all the house sparrows. Uh, they were abundant around livestock. Uh, you know, their numbers were greater when considerable food was available in cities because of horses, when we had all kinds of horse-drawn things in cities. Because house sparrows feed on spilled grain and undigested seeds in manure. Oh, boy, there's a... You don't see that on any menus. Well, when I my thought. dad was farming, we he used to we used to have a big uh, million gallon manure uh, lagoon they called it, and he, we would uh, he would spread it on the fields, you know, all at once because it would 
get to full and then you'd have to empty it. And he would have, I assume seagulls, or I don't know what the other word for him is, hundreds and hundreds. So he'd be having all that manure, which would, of course, turn everything kind of blackish brown. And all of a sudden it would be covered with white with all the seagulls diving down to get all that undigested corn. Oh, boy. You know, as a boy, those lagoons always scared me because I'd always oh. hear those stories about somebody falling into it, you know. And, yes. and of course, p- parents would uh, tell you those stories because they wanted you to live pretty much. They well, just wanted you to be careful. We had a couple heifers fall in that got out and drowned. I mean, oh. what a horrible way to drown in manure. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> my awful. gosh. Yeah, I... Those were scary stories, you know. We didn't uh, sit around campfires all that much talking about the guy with one arm and a hook and all those things. <laughs> we talked about people dialing, uh, dying in silos and lagoons and things like that. That was our uh, our rural uh, uh, scary stories. Yeah. I <clears throat> Somebody sent my wife a photo, and it's a Baltimore Oriole nest still hanging on. And the female chooses the site where she's going to build this, and she generally builds a nest. We used to say she does all the building, but now they have found some enlightened males apparently are bringing a piece of, Ah. you know, what they think is helping. They bring a a little piece of grass or something. Say, here you go, honey. (laughs) I saw this, and I thought of you, and I thought this would just be perfect. But she builds a nest. And she, the hanging pouch is firmly attached to a fork of a slender branch in the upper branches of a deciduous tree. Uh, but they can be lower, boy, six to sixty feet, probably. I don't know why they'd build one so low, but I guess they will on occasion. I see them especially in cottonwoods and maples. Uh, used to see them in elms when we had a lot of elm trees around. That seemed to be their favorite. But it's tightly woven of plant fiber, strips of bark, grapevines, grass, yarn, string, plant down, and hair. And I took some pictures of a female weaving that nest, and what an amazing thing. And she's just like a weaver or knitter or crocheter. She just does this and then kind of takes a step back and looks at it and says, yeah, that, that looks good, or no, and then she'll pull that out and put it somewhere else, and it's fun fun to watch. I drove by uh, muskrat mounds. Uh, there's lodges, which are the bigger ones, and then little push-ups, and an old trapper, and this would be at wood produce, and the only people that would know probably wood produce would be those from Heartland or Freeborn, Minnesota. It was in Freeborn, Minnesota, and it was where trappers would haul their hides and things. And an old trapper there, and I have no idea what his name was. I, uh, my dad probably told me, but I I don't know. He told me to count the lodges and then multiply by five, and then you can get the muskrat population of a wetland. Oh. So sadly, I don't remember his name, but I, I remember that, that he told me. How, how do you tell uh, the wh- difference between a muskrat and a beaver lodge? Because uh, we used to have beavers that used to make dams. Do muskrat lodges and beaver lodges look similar, or are they totally different? Oh, they maybe a little bit, because they have vegetation in it. But it's there'd be a lot more mud and... Uh, Oh, large branches and things like that in a beaver, where the there's more marsh vegetation in a muskrat mound. And muskrat mounds are the ones where we see Canada geese nesting on in the spring and summer. And uh, 
Beaver will also do theirs in the bank, so they might be against the bank and sit out in the middle like a muskrat. And beaver, um, they're generally larger. So it's, uh, and there's stories now that uh, scientists have, are saying whenever a beaver has this lodge and all of a sudden a muskrat will come in there and just kind of say, hey, how you doing? I get a little cold out here. I'm just going to come in here for a while. And it's, uh, I guess, as long as they don't eat much food or anything, any warmth is welcome in wintertime by those two, which generally aren't buddy buddies. But uh, it's, uh, we see a lot of muskrat mounds. It used to be uh, folks would say, oh, the higher the muskrat mound, the more severe the winter is going to be. And I, I don't think there's any truth to that, but it's still nice to see and kind of guess along. I saw, while walking on a Christmas bird count, I, I try to walk a lot. I did eight miles on this one, and I saw some black knot. And it's, uh, uh, the kids, when I lead them on walks, what do they call it? Poop on a stick. <laughs> and I guess, you know, I, uh, I didn't want to encourage them too bad, but I had to admit that they kind of, they kind of nailed the, yeah, it's a, um, it's a widespread fungal disease that attacks trees of the genus Prunus. Yes. And we would think of plum and cherry trees primarily. There are some other ones, but those are the two primary ones here. And it's hard. It's uneven. They, these black galls appear to enwrap twigs and branches. And I read something from an arborist one day that he said some trees can tolerate black knot. They just kind of shrug it off. Well, other ones are stunted, and uh, some are killed, so it's it's not a good thing. Well, I, we had uh, one of those prunus trees in the yard, and it started getting black knot. At first, they said, you know, prune it off. So I was pruning it off, and then you have to make sure to put it in garbage bags and throw it away. Otherwise, it can spread to other things because it's like a fungus with spores. And so I kept doing that, but as the tree kept getting taller... I could not get the ones on the top, so finally it got to the point it got so infected or affected by it that it started getting on the bark that actually this past last year we actually had to cut the whole thing down. And it was, oh, it had probably a pretty good girth by that time, but at some point it just, I didn't want it to spread to my other fruit trees, so I said, oh. so long, goodbye, and uh, had to cut it up and throw all those branches away so they wouldn't spread to everything else. And I've heard that from a number of people that say they cut off a branch, or they cut off kind of a twig and then a branch, and mm. it just keeps, keeps more going, and more yep. and more. Yeah. And I've seen some of those uh, knots on the bark of a tree, and some of them get really large. Yes. It's a yeah. huge thing here. So I have to mention uh, your your favorite animal, the voles. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, they prefer a white Christmas. Uh, not all of us do. I, I'm okay with. I'm I'm just okay with Christmas. It can be green, brown. I don't care what color it is. But voles prefer a white Christmas because they love to be under the snow for Christmas, and they prosper in what is called a subnivian zone, and that's the area between the surface of the ground and the bottom of the snowpack. And mice and shrews can also retreat there for protection from cold temperatures, bitter winds, hungry predators. And we've all seen those uh, videos of a fox jumping straight up in the air and then poof, face first down into that 
to get down into that subnubian zone where they're oh. probably finding a vole or a mouse. And there's also food available down there. And to be really effective, I think a vole would want about six inches of snow because that gives them a sturdy roof and then roomy living quarters. A bit more snow, and then that subnibian zone remains near 32 degrees regardless of the temperature above the snow. So it's a it's good living place for them. Uh, Wendy Vandenwall said, I know, I know, some can overwinter. I had a robin show up late in the afternoon in the crabapple, loudly announcing his presence and saying it was spring. It was so loud I heard it from inside the house. We usually do have one that shows up very early to claim his territory. Anyway, as my husband always says, after the winter solstice, every day is one day closer to spring. I choose to take this as a good omen. Happy 2021. May you have wonderful experience in nature this year and find some good birds. Well, thank you, Wendy. Uh, Anthony Clifton lives uh, somewhere in Iowa. I said on Saturday I had one Carolina wren at the feeders. Yesterday there were two, and today there are three. If this continues, I can build an air force of wrens to defeat my enemies with the power of cuteness. <laughs> uh, and they are cute. I just I love Carolina wrens. And you get a bit more of them in Iowa than we do here, but uh, we're trying. Art Check, who lives in northern Iowa, said, Amongst the usual suspects this morning, I have a red-breasted nuthatch and a Carolina wren at the same time. A never occurrence for me. Uh, good friend Tim Scott sent me a thing from the BBC about a strange phenomenon called hair lice, H-A-I-R. Uh, the crystals are formed on rotting wood on humid winter nights when the temperature is just below zero, and scientists have discovered it is caused by a fungus which enables the ice to form thin hairs with a diameter of about one-hundredth of a millimeter. And there were some photos, and it's, yeah, it's kind of a cross between snow and a fungus of some kind. It's, it's just beautiful. Uh, LaVon Froilan, LaVon lives in Austin, sent me a photo of a cardinal, and she said, I did something wild today. I looked at a bird. <laughs> my cardinal, as you suggested, and it made my day. Thanks. Here's his picture, and we see it many times. I really, oh, she, I was on TV, and she said, I really enjoyed your talk on Farm Connections. So thank you for that. And she said, I it was interesting when you told about the bird book at school that the teacher gave you. And, uh, well, thank you. Uh, Pat Ryan, another good friend. He's from uh, Mankato now, and he got a Christmas gift of a window feeder with the suction cups, which oh. is my favorite feeder of all kinds. So one in the family was kind enough to get that for Pat. Where did he get uh, that? Tom, because we haven't, my sister wanted to get one for her mother-in-law and weren't able to find any with a suction cup. So I guess we just didn't know where oh, to look. Yeah. So, or they were all out yeah. maybe. I'm not sure. I, I don't know because he got it as a gift. Okay. So. so I don't know where he got it, but I, I'm sitting in my office here and I have three of them on my windows. <laughs> okay. And I, I just love them, and they last quite a few years. Uh, one is made out of some kind of recycled plastic, and the other two are, are wooden, and the suction cups 
last um, oh, it's the suction cups that go first oh, sure. and uh, on these I think I can replace the suction cups on two of them so I can go to uh, oh I think uh, my wife even got some for me one year at Hobby Lobby or sure. one of those sort of places that have that cater to people that need suction cups I guess uh, Tom Bovers, Tom and I have been friends for a long time. He lives in Faribault, and he had uh, seen a winter wren in Rice County, an eastern bluebird, an American coot, and a great blue heron. Uh, Chad Hines, another boy, these are uh, old birding buddies. Uh, Chad Hines, who uh, teaches as a professor at Bethany, saw a Carolina wren in Nicollet County, and boy, this has been the, like the Carolina Wren Day, which is, makes me happy. And also a white-throated sparrow, Andrew Longton in Renville County saw an eastern bluebird and a merlin. And Kimberly Emerson of Cottonwood County saw a western meadowlark, which is a lovely, lovely bird. Not doing much singing this time of year. And uh, two friends, uh, Dwayne and Kathy Spooner, live in Heartland, called me a few years ago, and I went in, and they had a um, metal ark that spent the winter with them. So it would come to the feeders, and it was neat to see. Andrew Nyhus in Rice County saw a Merlin. Uh, Chad Hines in Blue Earth County saw a Harris's Sparrow. John Schladweiler. Uh, John did a great job with the DNR for many, many years. He is now retired, and he saw Merlin in uh, the New Ulm Cemetery in Brown County. Uh, Dean Musing, a wonderful guy, and I think I probably pronounce his name uh, differently each time in the hopes that I might get it right. (laughs) I do that sometimes, too. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think I'd be able to say Dean right. No, I I think I'm getting Dean right, and I hope Musing is, is right, Dean. He's a wonderful guy. He said, the other day, close to sundown, as I was taking my garbage to curbside, I saw a silhouette of what appeared to be a bat flying. Could this really be possible? Temperatures were unseasonably warm that day. Always listen to your show on KMSU. I've learned so much and have become an avid birder. Well, thanks for joining the cult, Dean. We appreciate you. There are four bat species that tough out Minnesota winters by hibernating. Let's see if I can get them all. There's the little brown bat. That's our most numerous bat. And then there's a northern long-eared bat, the big brown bat, and the tricolored bat, or the eastern pipistrelle. And I think those are the, those are the four that would winter here. These bats may stay in Minnesota the winter. They do migrate from parks and other natural areas to nearby caves or human-made structures, including houses. And the hibernation season for bats begins in the fall, probably around October or November, and then it ends in the spring, March, April, or May, depending on the weather and everything. The little brown bat, again, which is our most numerous bat, they hibernate in caves and mines. They like something with a high humidity and 40 to 60 degree temperatures. And most hang alone in their hibernating sites, but they can also be found in small clusters. The northern long-eared bats, they have been found hibernating in caves and sand mines that have high humidity and steady temperatures. 
The tricolored bat hibernates in caves, mines, and rock crevices. They seek spots that are all warm and humid again. That's kind of the typical what bats want, which often causes beads of water to form on their fur. The big brown bat, that's the one we um, usually encounter. They tend to hibernate in caves and human-made structures and temperatures that are just above freezing. During hibernation, which uh, some scientists would say it's more accurately, accurately called torpor, big brown bats commonly, uh, commonly, they might often wake up every couple weeks. And an extreme swing in temperatures during winter can lead these bats to wake up from their hibernation or torpor to look for maybe a more comfortable place inside the home. They just found that this wasn't the best place. They, they need a better place. So during this awakened period, they may move around or even fly short distances. So during this time, they may accidentally exit a gap oh, in a recessed light fixture, a cold air return, open attic hatch, a hole in the wall. And so people will commonly report finding bats in basements, but they also on occasion find their way outside and fly around. Uh, unless they can get back inside fairly quick, it's not going to be a good end to them because there's nothing for them to eat mm -hmm. and it'll be too cold for them. But they just uh, make a wrong, uh, Bugs Bunny was always making a wrong turn <laughs> at Albuquerque, and that's kind of what these bats do. And then speaking of bats, this ties right into something that you sent me, all about bats. Yeah. And that's going to be Tuesday, January 26th at 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. online via Zoom. That's where the whole world is, folks, as you know. It's via Zoom. And you can join the Living Earth Center and the Nebraska Wildlife Rehab's Executive Director, Laura Stastny, to learn about bats in the Midwest and beyond. Often misunderstood, bats are some of the most diverse, interesting, and beneficial animals on the planet. Uh, I will second that. Uh, come learn where they live, what they eat, and how they contribute to ecosystems across the globe. Gain insight into the threats bats face and what you can do to help these amazing animals. Laura and the Na Nebraska Wildlife Rehab see over 500 bats in a typical year. Living Earth Center is excited to partner with them to bring you this unique educational opportunity. Uh, there's all kinds of information. There is a, a charge, $7 for a ticket, but there are scholarships of, available to cover cost of tickets. And uh, it's at the, what is it, SSND Co-op. Am I getting that right, Karen? School Sisters of Notre Dame is what SSND stands for, yeah. Okay. And you can uh, email them at livingearthcenter at ssndcp.org. Al, did so you have to, when with a name like Bat, did you get called names like you're a vampire or anything? I was just curious when you're talking about, all about bats. <laughs> yeah, um, usually Batman. I, oh, I sure. That. Yeah, so I was lucky that Batman was around, so I got to... <laughs> I didn't get a whole lot of vampiring stuff because it was uh, it was.
was just cooler to be Batman, I think, and maybe I encourage that, that they call me that rather than Drac or Vlad the Impaler or anything like that. And, so, and who was your sidekick? Who, who played Robin in your, your little Batman? You know, who, whoever <laughs> I could find it would listen to my knucklehead ideas and go off on an adventure <laughs> with me. I always had a couple of neighbors that would, no matter how stupid an idea I came up with, they would say, yeah, oh. I think that would work. Let's nice. do that. And and they never worked. Oh, we just uh, on a good day we got caught before we did what we planned to do. So uh the last question I have, Karen, somebody said, "How do I know what winter finches <clears throat> from the north might visit my yard?" Yeah, that's we had so many pine siskins this year, and they're one of those. Uh, the movement of these finches and other birds into Minnesota is based on the abundance of of their favorite foods in Canada. <clears throat> pine grosbeaks, uh, they're one. I love seeing them up north. That it, they might not be traveling as much as they do some year because they have a lot of mountain ash fruit. The crop was really good in the coniferous forest this winter. Uh, pine siskins, again, they were pretty much everywhere for a while. They feed on spruce seeds in Canada and finch seed at our feeders. Uh, red crossbills, white-winged crossbills, they feed primarily on conifer seeds. Uh, purple finches show up here most years feeding on sunflower seeds we offer. Common red poles. A red pole weighs slightly more than four pennies, so if anybody still has four pennies, they could kind of tell that one those away. They feed on birch and alder seeds. They eat niger seed at our feeders. A caller uh, one year said she spotted the largest goldfinch she'd ever seen. Uh, it was, uh, some have said that the evening gross beaks are uh, goldfinches on steroids, muscle-bound goldfinches. I want to see an evening gross beak in my yard. That's that's what I want to do this year. They feed on box elder, maple, ash, locust seeds. They are prodigious eaters of sunflower seeds. Uh, they're hogs at the trough. Uh, red-breasted nuthatches aren't finches, but they depend on conifer seeds when wintering in the north. And we had some at the Christmas bird count. We usually get them earlier early in the fall, but they're really neat, and they are like Carolina wrens. You look at them, and you say, there's only one way to describe that bird, and that's cute. They're just really, really, really cute. I think I said three reallys there. You know, when I write, I always try to take really out of everything I write. Uh, concise. Usually, you want to be concise. Yeah, you don't really need really. And there I said it twice more. But sometimes <laughs> when you're saying, I get excited about a bird, and i got to just uh, come out with an endless supply of really, because uh, I want to make sure everybody uh, knows how beautiful some of these birds are. It's like using too many exclamation points. You know, that gets kind of annoying if you use too many of those, too, I suppose. Yeah, somebody sent me, uh, folks send me stuff every so often, and they've written, and they want to say, could uh, you give any editing advice on this? And, you know, I have to say up front, I don't enjoy doing it. It's Not your favorite thing. no, I do it on occasion because they're friends and people I know, but who wants to, you know, I don't want to correct people and say, no, you should have done this. <laughs> what do I know? They're the ones writing this. But 
the one lady put exclamation points, I swear, um, after about every sentence. Because oh, no. she was excited about everything. She wanted everybody else to be excited as she was. Yeah. So the only advice I gave her was maybe call out some of that exclamation point heard. <laughs> might be a good idea. So I... Uh, and I talked to a good friend. She's in Hawaii now, and she does uh, editing for uh, for a lot of people in books uh, that they write, and they send it to her, and she edits them. And um, she was mentioning the same thing. She said people tend to overuse exclamation points because it, they're just excited about things. Now like, you oh, wrote yeah. a. You're an author of a book. It's called what is it called again? Remind me. Sorry. I... Uh, one is A Life Gone to Birds, and then there's the one I wrote with Bill Thompson called Minnesota Birding. Yeah. So so what happened with the editing process there? Did you have somebody look at it, or do publishers do that, or how does that process work? Um, yeah, Bill and I. Um, Bill edited the, the one book, and then Bill and I fought over everything in the other book. So <laughs> just said, uh, it went really well. We kind of uh, were like minds, but you need somebody to look at it because there's so many, you know, if you're typing them, it's so easy to put there instead of there, T-H-E-I-R mm. instead of T-H-E-R-E. And after you read it 27 times, your eyes just kind of skip over that and say, well, that must be right. It's in there. Wait. So you got to have somebody else look at it. Did your wife, does she play a role in reading your stories and say, oh, Al, that's don't tell that story? Or does she you know, say, oh, that's a great story? Or I was just curious if she had any role in your your story. She just rolls her eyes <laughs> pretty much, so, which is, and she can roll them all the way around, which is well, that's a, great. a gift that's uh, only given to women, I think, because I've tried that. and it, You know, I can't do much with my eyes. Did you try to cross your eyes when you were a kid because some knucklehead on the bus? Oh, yes, of course, thought, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could you do that? I really couldn't. It kind of irritated. It was. I felt it, like it irritated or strained my eyes or something. I didn't like it. It hurt. Yeah, yeah I exactly. tried it and thought, man. Why I'm would not, you do that? I don't. I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. Cause, <laughs> exactly. And then, and then, of course, your uh, mom would say, you know, if you make a face or cross your eyes, then you're going to be stuck with that for the rest <laughs> of your life. So, yeah. So that. That ended that. You know, folks, this time of year, that which doesn't freeze us solid. It makes us warmer, I think. January is when we begin to miss the smell of sunscreen. Yeah. And we start wearing snowshoes more than and more often than sandals. Yeah, it's when we shovel snow to make room for more snow. And we realize that Miracle on Ice was a science fiction film about a Midwestern driver going an entire winter without spinning on ice. I recall the year I got my wife a refrigerator for Christmas, sir. Boy, did her eyes light up when she opened that present. <laughs> Somebody sent me a video. Nice people, they send you videos, and it was one that uh, he'd made, and it was down in Florida, and it made me cry because uh, I was eating popcorn and got salt in my hangnail. Uh, it was about old guys playing softball. They have these softball leagues down there, and they play into their 90s, some of them. And one of them, they weren't the, he was trying to interview them, and they weren't real talkative. One said, well, I'm not half bad. And the other one said, uh, I'm not quite dead yet. 
I used to play in a Hall of Fame softball game or two each year, and the sound of snapping hamstrings was deafening. (laughs) We quit playing softball to save our hearing. And I think of this time of year, uh, all the things going on, and I like Willa Cather, and her words from her book, The Song of the Lark, uh, proves helpful to me. She wrote, there are some things you learn best in calm and some in storm. I hope you all uh, find a a preponderance of calm in your day-to-day. Remember, Heartland, as well, we're driving past. Uh, Thanks for listening to me. And remember, you can't go wrong with Karen Wright. That's Uh, right. I I just love spending time with her. So (laughs) thank thank you, you, Karen. I enjoyed your company. You do a great job. Thank you, Al. We enjoy having you on, and we will be back with you next week. Until then, happy bird watching. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, I love Al. He's just an awesome guy. Hey, speaking of birds, I was just noticing I got a a note from the North Mankato Community Events list. And speaking of birds, they have DIY bird feeders available through the North Mankato Taylor Library. And that is from January 11th at 10 a.m. to January 15th at 4 p.m. So kids ages 3 to 8 are invited to sign up for a DIY bird feeder take-home kit the sign-up opens Monday, January 4th, so that would be, it's open now at 10 a.m. And then you can pick up your kits anytime between the 11th and the 15th, January 11th through the 15th. So that's kind of a fun thing if you you know want your children to maybe do something and have a bird feeder and have some activity for them to watch outside. What a great idea. So you can do that starting now, kids just eight to ages 3 to 8. Uh, sign up for your DIY bird feeder and then pick it up next week uh, between January 11th and 15th from the North Cato Taylor Library. And to do that, you can call the library at 345-5120. That's 345-5120. Or you can stop by the library or you can go online to northbankato.com slash Taylor Library. Go to the North Mankato site and probably click on the public library there and find out more so what a fun thing to do uh yeah three four five fifty one twenty thought i'd tie some bird bird activities into our bird talk with al bat okay now we'll tie in some music because what do we like to do on kmsc we like to play music but first this from your minnesota history lesson